There's got to be a point in all of our lives when something happens and we become a seeker. Hello and welcome again, fellow seekers, to the Seekers of the Eternal podcast. I'm your host, Pale Horse, and my co-host, Jay, he's out with a cold this week, so flying solo again here. And this is a really great uh, episode because we get to now finally dive into the beginning of the Ramayana story and begin to pull out lessons that we can start to use in our life. And this one is a very powerful group of, of lessons that I've been putting to practice currently in a, in a lot of ways. It, even just this example of, of hosting this podcast is, it takes a lot of <laughs> confidence and courage to commit to every week sitting in front of this microphone and um, coming up with what I'm going to be sharing and sort of getting out of the way and letting and letting these things come through me. I have to get over a lot of self-doubt. I have to get over the fears of, you know, uh, fears about if, that it won't turn out the way that I expected or that I won't be able to pull it off or that I won't find the inspiration or that I'll say things that get me into trouble. All of these kind of things of like putting yourself out there uh, that we run into, that we become afraid of and that keep us from accomplishing things. So that's kind of a, a headline of, of what we'll be exploring and discovering in, in this week's uh, lessons of the Ramayana. And I'll be pulling from a few sources. So uh, in my study of the Ramayana, I like to listen to a lot of different audiobooks and talks and read uh, a lot of different sources. So um, some, of my, some of my sources come from, first one is there is a, a series of short stories on Audible. It's an Audible original. It's called Many Lessons, Many Ramayanas by Neil, uh, by Anand Neil Akant. And the other source is a talk by um, Swami Kriyananda called Life is a Battlefield. And the third one is a class in the Ramayana. It's a six-part series of classes by a teacher that I love named Nayaswami Asha. And this, uh, the place that I want to start really here is, is at the beginning. And it's known that the, the original writer of the Ramayana, he... <laughs> It's, it's, a very, it's a very interesting roots of this story because they say that the poet who wrote the Ramayana, the one who first gave form to the Ramayana in Sanskrit before it was passed down from generation to generation to generation. But the first, the first man, the first poet to ever put the Ramayana into form, into written language, was actually a, a murderous robber. His name was Ratnakara, and he used to sit in the forest, wait in the forest for passers-by with the sword unsheathed, and when a passer would come by, he would 
rob them, take their belongings, and often kill them. This is a strange place for us to start here. You would think that a, a, a holy book, this story, would not have such nefarious author as it's... Um, as the the way that it started wouldn't be from an an author of like this that's a murderous robber and Ratnakara, you know he it's he he would you know consider himself <laughs> it's like who would be who would be worse than a murderous robber you know so um Ratnakara, he is the future poet of the ramayana but at this point he was just a he was a a, a hungry murderous robber. So as the story starts, one day he's waiting in the forest for passersby. And this great sage named Narada ends up walking towards him in the forest. And Ratnakara is waiting for him. He's hungry and he is looking for at any cost to feed himself and to feed his family. And so he approaches the sage Narada with this, with this sword and he sees that Narada is carrying his veena, his musical instrument, and he wishes to take that from the sage so that he could sell it and feed his family. And the sage Narada, it's like a, imagine like a Jedi walking through the forest, totally calm, unafraid of this man that has a sword drawn in front of him. He asks Ratnakara, he says, why do you rob people? And Ratnakara tells him, because I'm hungry to feed my family. We're poor. What do you want us to do? This is how I feed my family. This is my job and everyone has to have a job and this is my job. And the sage says to him, well, isn't it against Dharma to feed your family in this way, to rob and kill people for their possessions? And really, Ratnakara, he is, he is kind of stunned by this, by this questioning, saying, I do, I'm doing it for my family. I'm doing it out of love for them. How could it be against Dharma? I'm doing my duty. I'm a good man. No, and I really, the more that we look into um, the plight and the situations of others, so often we realize that everybody really kind of sees themselves as the good guy, even if they're murdering people for their belongings. They don't often see themselves in that way of being evil. They're really only doing what they have to do to survive. And how could that be wrong? And so as, as he asks him, you know, why do you rob people to feed your family? And he tells them that I do this out of love for my family and to feed them, to clothe them. And he says, does your family know that you're a robber? And he says, of course they do. And he says, well, the, the sage says to him, the sage Narada says to him, well, is your family willing to take the fruits of your bad karma? Are they willing to eat the fruits of your bad karma? And Ratnakara says, of course they are. We're in this together. 
I do this for them. I do this to feed them. Of course, they would be willing to be in this with me and, and be responsible for the fruits of, of the karma that I have to take on in order to do my duty as a husband. And he says, well, why don't you ask them? And if they, if they aren't, what will you do? And would you, would you leave them and would you do things another way? Would you explore the spiritual path? Would you come with me? Yes, I would. If they're not willing to eat the fruits of my karma with me, then, then, um, then I would come with you. And he's so, so Ratnakara takes the sage Narada back to his home and the sage waits a distance away watching the interaction between Ratnakara and his wife. And as he returns home with empty handed, uh, the, the wife and the children are um, upset that he has come home with nothing. And he asks them if they would be willing to share in the fruits of his bad karma. He says that this sage says that I am, um, I am, I am taking on a terrible sin by, by providing for you in this way. Uh, are you not willing to, to eat the fruits of my, my karma with me? And, and they said, no, the, his wife tells him that the way that you take care of us is, is your duty as the man. Why should we, myself and my children, be responsible for the way that you provide for us? So no, we will, will not take on your karma for this. And he is shocked and stunned and, and distraught and he drops his sword and he walks back to the sage Narada. And he is just completely depressed and he realizes that he's, you know, saying that he has wasted his life and he has nothing and that his family basically was just using him for a meal ticket, that they really didn't love him at all. And he wants to be initiated into spiritual practice, but he says, I'm illiterate. I can't read. I don't have any books. I don't have any teachers. I'm just living alone now here in this forest. What can I do? What, I'm lost. I have, and he's having all this self-pity. And Narada asks him to be compassionate with yourself, to forgive yourself. And he says to him, that what he should do is to chant this one word with devotion, Ram. And as, as Ratnakara tries to chant this one word, he can't even pronounce Rama. He's too, the word is too pure and he is too filled with evil as being this murderous robber for his whole life that he can't even pronounce the word. And so the sage says to him, well, can you pronounce the word Mara? And that word is actually the word for Satan or for death or to kill. And so he can easily pronounce this word Mara. And so he tells him to, with determination, with all of your power, chant unceasingly this word Mara, 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 Rama. <laughs> you can see, you know, how, how that word can change as it's, as it is chanted over and over, Mara, 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 Mara. 
And so he decides to do just that. And he sits by the banks of the river Tomasa and he chants this word with, with, with an enormous amount of power and with determination. And he continues to chant and chant this word, Mara, Mara, Mara. And with so much willpower, he chants this word that in, in not very much time, can, you know, not very much time, you know, relatively to how, how long it can take to, to experience these kind of states. He's chanting this word and he goes into samadhi, which is a state of um, divine bliss, of ecstasy. He leaves his body chanting this word with such vigor and such determination that he leaves his body and he merges with the state of bliss, of oneness, and doesn't even realize that as he's doing this, ants begin to be attracted to the sweetness of him. And the ants begin to build an anthill around him, covering his body in an anthill. And through the seasons, through the years, he continues to chant Mara, 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 continuing to chant and chant, and he's covered by these ants until eventually the ants even move on and, and go find a new home. And as he is um, in, in the, re, the re, you know, he, he notices the ants around him because he can feel their presence and the, the ants feel that he is one with them. So they are in this perfect sort of harmony and union. And when the ants decide to move on to another home, he is just about to get up and stretch his legs. And then a cobra makes its way over to the anthill and then moves into the anthill and he decides not to move and not out of fear from the cobra, but it is because he is at one with this cobra and this cobra nestles up to him and they share in this, this beautiful harmonious relationship living together here with this anthill. So he continues to, to chant the mantra and chant the mantra in ecstasy until eventually, eventually, you know, he is continuing. He's he's not. He doesn't want to move in fear of the um, the cobra, like destroying the cobra's home. So he's just sitting there in complete stillness, not moving, chanting, chanting. And with this, and this is some some uh, insights from Swami Kriyananda about the concentration of power that what we, are, we should do and that this, this story of, of this story of the sage and the robber beginning to chant this mantra with power is that it is such a wonderful example of this, that if we really go at it, we really, um, uh, we really go at what we're doing with, with power and with integrity and with concentration that what is possible for us is, is infinite. That if we concentrate our power and we set out to do everything that we do with power, um, we can have great effects. 
Swami Kriyananda, like I was saying at the beginning, that one of the problems that people face in life is an inability to put all of their energy into any one direction at a time. He says that many people are good, but because they don't really put their power into what they're doing, they don't get very far. He says that the Bhagavad Gita says that even the worst of sinners, if he steadfastly meditates, quickly comes to me. Swami Kriyananda says that it isn't where we are. It isn't what we have to overcome. It isn't how much it is. <laughs> so I'll repeat that again. He says, it isn't where we are. It isn't what we have to overcome. It is how much energy we put into the process. If we really apply energy to everything that we are doing, then we can accomplish what we set out to do. Most people sort of wish for good things. They wish to do good things, wish to help others, wish to help themselves, but not with enough willpower. And that's why they don't get anywhere on the path. One of the things that helps us to develop this kind of willpower is to mix with those who are in tune with that kind of magnetism that we want to develop. Yogananda said, if we want to become an artist, we should mix with artists. If you want to become a successful businessman, then mix with successful businessmen. Don't mix with failures. If you want to become a devotee, then mix with other devotees. And this is a very powerful lesson, a truth, and a reminder to really remember that when we start out on something, that it is about how much energy that we put into it. And just like this story of Narada, we can come to these realizations from anywhere that we're starting. You can be the worst sinner in the world as, as, uh, as this um, writer, this poet of the Ramayana started out, you know, a murderous robber. You can have all of your faults, you can have all of your shortcomings, all of the evil deeds and all of the things that you're, um, the place that you're starting. So you start there and you don't worry about that. But you, what you do is you, is you put all of your power and attention into what you're doing. And just in the same way that he did that with the chant, quickly he realized that he was able to go into samadhi. He was able to have this communion with the divine, even though he was this murderous robber. <laughs> and so for us, I think that's very encouraging. You don't have to be perfect to start in a meditation practice. You don't even have to be good. You just have to really want it. We shouldn't judge ourselves um, based on where we're starting or who we are. We should only judge ourselves. I heard uh, one of my teachers say, we should really only judge ourselves by that which we aspire to become. So if we aspire to become the best version of ourselves and we are putting in our full concentration and energy into going after that, then we will be successful. But we will be met oftentimes with a resistance and aversion Whenever there is a wish, uh, a, a life wish, whenever there is something that we really want to be doing, we really want to be accomplishing, 
we are met with this opposite force, the death wish, the, the wish to um, give up to, to, you know, in, in, a, in a broad sense, the, you know, the wish to die is, is one of them, but also the wish to just fall asleep or to become lazy, to give up, um, to find peace through just giving up in this sort of battlefield of life. We can either really charge forth and go after it with all of our energy and our power and our courage. Or we feel sometimes that we could just give up. It's kind of like I mentioned before, this um, Swami Kriyananda talks about the nostalgia for the mud as we are like this lotus bud that wants to move up and grow out of the mud and open its petals to the light of the sun. That we have this opposite force that wants to make us wish that we could just sink back down into the mud and go back to our unconsciousness. But, but we can't really do that. That's not really going to bring us the satisfaction. We, you know, we want to numb ourselves with all kinds of things, eating too much, sleeping too much, too much sex, alcohol and drugs that would numb us. But if we really put our power into it, we can accomplish what we uh, are meant to be doing with our lives. So I want to really encourage us to be doing that, to really strive and, and we can create a, a support system for each other. We can be an environment, just like he says here, if you, if you wish to be an artist, then mix with artists. If you wish to be a successful businessman, mix with other successful businessmen or women. And that will help us to, to, to um, have that sort of environment and that energy. So we can be that for each other, tuning into things like this podcast, um, rather than doom scrolling through the news and through our feeds and our TikToks and just wasting time. We can tune into teachers and books and people that can really inspire us. We can see aspirational people and emulate what they're doing. We can go to places where there are people who are accomplishing their dreams and their goals and really going after things. So we want to be um, a group, a community who is doing that and is encouraging each other to do that. And it's he says here that this is Swami Kriyananda, the, the company that you keep, and this is paraphrasing a bit here, the company that you keep is very important. And, but one of the disciples of Yogananda asked though, what if, what if I am alone? And, and Yogananda told him, well, am I not always with you? And in that way, we know that God is always with us, our higher self. You can use whatever word that you want to use. Um, our higher self is always with us, our inner guru. Um, just in the way of the story of Hanuman in the Ramayana, he is always chanting Rama, 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 Rama. And that way Rama is always with him, even if he is alone. And, and he says that this is the most important satsang. A satsang is a gathering of uh, gathering a spiritual gathering between friends. So the most important satsang is to keep the consciousness of God in our hearts always. You can live alone and advance the best of all. 
just like in this story, sitting in the anthill, chanting Rama alone, but feeling that connection with the divine. And so that I wanted to point that out as just with, with this community as a great way to be around others who are seeking the same thing, seeking to become the best versions of ourselves, seeking, seeking to do great things with our life. We didn't come here, like I said in the last podcast, we, did, we didn't come into this world to sit around and waste time and to sink back into the mud and to be lazy. So let's, let's like have, let's go for it, you know, like fearlessly go for it. I'm pushing myself this year and in these past few years to really go for it. Coming out of this pandemic, we've all made a lot of uh, evolution or maybe we've slid back, but now is the time to really go for it, to just what the heck, let's, let's really put ourselves out there and see what happens and go fearlessly with calmness, sweetness and happiness and whatever we're doing with a lot of power in it. Um, I'm finding a lot of, a lot of motivation with this and I'm trying to put this into everything I'm doing and it's, it becomes so much more fun and seeing this life as a video game, you know, these, these lessons here that we're talking about, these are ways to see all of the different opportunities for playing the game more skillfully. So we can keep that in mind as we're going through this, this first story of the poet who wrote the Ramayana. And so as, as he is sitting and, and chanting, being covered by this anthill now with this cobra sitting with him in this just loving harmony as he sits and chants, the sage Narada returns and encourages the, this new yogi, this new meditator, this, this, um, this, this previous murderous robber who used to kill people and steal their belongings. He is now unwilling to move as Narada comes and sees him because he doesn't want to destroy the home of the cobra. And Narada is very pleased with, with hearing these words, but he tells him to get up anyways. Don't, don't think of yourself so important that God will take care of this cobra and to, to, to stand up. And now sage Narada gives Ratnakara his new name. He says that now your name is Valmiki, which I believe this is in Sanskrit, the meaning of Valmiki means anthill. And he realizes now that this chant, Mara, 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 that he's been chanting, he awakens and realizes that he's been chanting, that it had changed from Mara, 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 Mara to Rama, 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 Rama. And he is overjoyed with this. And he, and he recognizes that he has understood the meaning of that word, Rama, 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 that that Rama is, as it says in, in this sh series of short stories by Anand Nilakant, he says that Rama is the light of our consciousness. Rama is the light in the darkness. Rama is what is pleasing and Rama is the joy in the world. And he's just, he's just in ecstasy. He is just 
been here for years and years and years, covered by the elements, not eating, not sleeping. And this is also, there has been known saints that have done this, that have gone for long, long periods of time, covered by the earth, continuing to chant and finally be uh, uncovered. Uh, these are stories that you hear um, in meditation, in my practice of Kriya Yoga. I my practice points at ways that 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 is become where I can understand how that could be possible and through master of the mastering the energy in the bodies they yogis great uh, master yogis can not only stop their breaths but stop their heart from beating and go into a state of suspended animation leaving the body while the body um, doesn't age the cells rejuvenate Mm -hmm. This is this is what is said. This is the the promise, and this is what this story, this ancient story, is pointing to. And the sage Narada tells the new uh, the the new sage Valmiki, the new poet Valmiki, that he is to write about Rama and write about this most noble man that ever lived. And he begins to tell him the stories of, of Rama and, and tasks him with putting this story into form, into writing, into Sanskrit. And this you know, previously illiterate murderous robber is now tasked with writing this most uh, incredible book possibly ever, ever uh, written into Sanskrit. So he becomes this poet and he's wondering how he, how he is going to do this. And he is in this ecstatic state and Valmiki is, is now wandering the river, uh, wandering the river banks. And as he is, is wandering the river banks and just enjoying the beauty of nature, he feels this complete bhavana with nature, this complete oneness, this ecstasy. And as he's wandering the banks, they say it's the river Tamasa, and the river Tamasa, the river of darkness. He has overcome the darkness and found the light. He's in springtime. They say that love was in the air. He's just enjoying all of the nature and enjoying his, his life now with this, this oneness with his higher self. And he's wrapped in ecstasy and he sees this pair of, of cranes and these two lovebirds, these cranes that are in this loving playfulness, um, mating and enjoying each other. And he is just overjoyed by, by watching these two birds and realizing the, um, the creativity of life and the, the beauty of it all. And as he's, you know, it's just in tears with how beautiful this scene is here, this planet Earth, and how beautiful it is when we are freed from all of the distortions that cloud our true vision of this golden lotus world of perfection that it truly is. As he's watching these birds, all of a sudden he sees an arrow fly through the air and pierce the male bird. A hunter has killed this bird for his food. And 
the female bird is just crying out in anguish and Valmiki is just so struck by how awful he feels for this for this uh, bird who's crying in pain and the, the female bird who is crying for her mate that he spontaneously utters this curse to the hunter and always these these ancient indian stories these myths are started with a curse they they often begin with a curse that is usually what sparks the the story into what it will become and in the same way of writing the ramayana it begins with a curse and he's just hit with this flash of anger and he spontaneously cries out this curse to the hunter saying don't brute you will never have peace for have you have killed one of the two birds while they were in the act of love and valmiki is just in anguish seeing this vision of this what has just happened uh, that you know this is a terrible curse to <laughs> to curse somebody with in in these times when you when a great sage um cries out a curse at you then that curse comes into fruition that is just the way that it goes with this so when these curses are uttered it is a, a very big deal and this is a, a very a terrible cru- uh, curse you will never have peace for you have killed one of the two birds while they were in the act of love and valmiki he goes back to his ashram just completely destroyed by what he has seen is now moved out of this feeling of ecstasy and he's just in this terrible state where he's just so much in anguish over what he has seen but he begins to question and contemplate why was i moved to that flash of anger and it occurs to him that the poetic rhythm that the curse that he uttered it was exactly the right rhythm for the writing of this story of the great man known as rama and the ramayana so this curse that he utters he keeps hearing it over and over in his mind he's not a poet before this and he realizes that the meter the rhythm of the words is the same is the exact same way that will be the springboard which will launch him into writing the ramayana and they say that he saw the story of the ramayana just as if you saw something that you were holding in your hand in front of you it all came to him so clearly and then in this poetic meter he began to write this most epic long series of verses of shlokas um that from out of his out of his um sorrow and his empathy for the birds he writes this and and they say that's what it really takes to be a true poet to 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 have compassion and to have empathy and to write from a deep place where it's a combination of of having empathy and and having um this this deep uh sense of grief but at the same time writing this this uh, work of beauty and so with this 
Um, one of my teachers from, uh, from Ananda, uh, Nayaswami Asha, she was talking about this part of this story of Valmiki and him contemplating this, this reason why he was brought into this flash of anger. And she brings up this wonderful story of this golden Buddha in Bangkok, Thailand that you can visit today. It's this really large golden Buddha. It's, it's not as large as some of them. She says that, you know, I've seen some of the enormous golden Buddhas, but it's, it's a large, it's a large uh, statue that is solid gold, very heavy. And during this time in Thailand, as the history of the, of the area goes, there were a lot of these murderous hordes that would come through and just ransack villages and temples and cities. And so as they knew that these, these hordes were coming through, they decided that they were going to move this, this golden Buddha out to the edge of the river and they covered it in plaster so that hopefully if someone saw it, they would just think it's a, a worthless statue and it's heavy, so there's no need to, to destroy it or to take it. And it, sta- it sat there for a long, long time until one day one of the, one of the kings or w- w- someone there, one of the rulers decided that it's... It, we should bring this Buddha. It's, it shouldn't be out there by the river. It should be in the center of the city. And so he hired a engineer and the engineer brought on a, a lot of people and horses and pulleys, all of this to be able to move this giant gold Buddha into this. Or, <laughs> well, they thought it was just a um, plaster Buddha at this time to move this plaster Buddha into the center of the city. And so as they began to move it, the engineering failed and this big plaster Buddha fell and cracked and revealed the golden, the solid gold, this solid gold Buddha that existed within that nobody had any idea that it was there. And Asha, the the takeaway that she was um, sharing here is that in order for this them to discover the golden Buddha, and they needed an engineer who had the courage, she said, the chutzpah to try, but who wasn't really capable of pulling off the job successfully. They needed it to fall and to crack. And she says, and I, I love this because this really spoke to me when I heard it. She said that, One of the most difficult aspects of human life is a guilt and shame and anxiety over our failures, worshiping our mistakes, being unable to just allow the ups and downs of life to flow. We become very nervous and we become incapable of expressing ourselves and our talents. We're always anxious because of the fear that it might not come out exactly right. You know, and that, that really resonates with me. And I, I know that that probably stops a lot of us. We have this, this guilt and shame over our past failures. We, we're always mulling over our mistakes over and over in our mind. We're 
kicking ourselves for everything that we've done wrong, of not being good enough. And that just feels so awful. We should stop doing that. <laughs> I'm trying um, to stop doing that, to really recognize. And this, this story, I think, well illustrates this, that she says this, you know, this whole story starts, this is a paraphrase here, this whole story starts with Valmiki losing his temper, asking himself, why was I deceived by my emotion? He wonders about why he lost his temper and realizing that out of that terrible curse, a spontaneous rhythmic verse came. And from that rhythmic curse, he was going to be able to write the entire story of the Ramayana. And so if we look deeper at this, these two stories, that it was this seeming failure. I mean, when we lose our temper and we curse someone, that's... <laughs> that's a failure. That's not something that we should aspire to do that we, when we lose our temper and, and do something like that in the same way we, you know, this, this person, this engineer that was moving the Buddha failed and dropped it. But out of these two situations, something seemingly that was a failure actually led to something better. Asha says, there's a deeply important spiritual lesson hidden within this story. Not only to be able to rise in triumph when things go well, but to move forward without hesitation when things are going badly, like the engineer with the Buddha, to be fearless and think, what the heck, let's try it. Because you never really know if it cracks whether or not it's trying to uncover something that's better. And I wanted to share this, this whole story and, and these lessons with you because this is something that I'm really putting into practice and I and encourage us all that we should think, what the heck, let's try it. I mean, we want to use introspection. We, all of the things that we've been talking about here, I've, I've, there's other episodes of this podcast about really asking whether something you are meant to be doing is right for you and using your intuition. But when you've done your best and you've really, um, you've developed a state of calm feeling about something and, and you, you really want to go after something and you feel it's something that you, you're meant to do and go after it. Don't be afraid that it might not turn out the way because it's just going to keep us wasting time. It's, it's, it's appalling to think about how many lifetimes that we've lived over and over being afraid to take chances, being afraid to put ourselves out there creatively, being able to, being afraid to go after something that we want, being afraid to go out and make friends or to start a relationship with someone that we're interested in or to go after our dreams and, and to even have dreams. So, we should really, we should really do that when we're, you know, do all of the, the things that help us to become calm and to attune to our intuition. And then when we find something that we want to do, let's go through with it, do it. And even if, you know, a lot of times we'll find ourselves having a lot of, a lot of power and courage and interest at the beginning, but then um, so part of the way through, we start to lose that momentum sometimes. I noticed that in my life, but we should really see it through, 
see it through and go take it all the way to the end because that will develop uh, more and more magnetism, more and more power within us. It also reminds me too of this idea that just like Valmiki, you know, you, you, we have a lot of things that we want to change in ourselves. We have a lot of things that, uh, a lot of things that are keeping us from being our best selves. We have a lot of vices or we have um, fault, faults and flaws in our, in ourselves that we want to overcome. And, you know, if you want to stop smoking, say, for instance, or stop drinking or over, you want to stop being so lazy and going to the gym, anything like that, that when we overcome that vice, we overcome that thing that we want to overcome, that just like in the Bhagavad Gita, it says that, that these enemies that we are overcoming, that we don't actually kill those enemies. Uh, that when we overcome a, a deep vice or a challenge or, or something that we're looking to triumph over, that we don't actually kill that part of ourselves, that we actually become stronger, that we take that energy and it makes us stronger. When we wrestle against a stronger wrestler, when we're fighting against a stronger fighter and we overcome that, we actually become stronger because of it. So in the case of, of um, you know, something very difficult, like wanting to stop smoking, when, when we keep trying, you say, I can and I will. And, and, you know, if you fail and start again, start again. And when you overcome that, the, the strength that you, that you gain from it, not only do you overcome, stop smoking, the health benefits, the, all of the great benefits that come from being a non-smoker, the, the financial, the, the time that you would save, but you also draw to yourself this new strength. And then you get to put that strength into the next thing that you want to overcome and the next thing that you want to overcome. And then before you know it, you're just knocking these things out because you're becoming stronger and stronger. It's like lifting smaller weights, you know, and, and maybe if, if the thing that you want to overcome is too big, pick smaller challenges that you're overcoming, lifting those smaller weights, and then you're becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. And in, if you're interested in, in developing a meditation practice, a daily meditation practice, overcoming the resistance to that and putting your full power, if you're looking to start, chant, to start um, working with these affirmations that we have in the episodes here in the podcast, you become stronger and stronger and you put that energy, that willpower and all of your determination into those affirmations. And then just like this, uh, this murderous robber become poet, sage, Valmiki, the more energy that you put into it, the more quickly that you can develop the things that you're looking to develop, the, the, you can cultivate these things that you want to cultivate in your life. You can, you can go to the highest level of achieving samadhi, leaving the body and experiencing the oneness and bliss of the universe, the true state of consciousness, the, what we truly are, sat-chit-ananda, ever-conscious, ever-existing, ever-new bliss. 
So it's been fun sharing this with you. And in the next episode, hopefully I'll have my brother Matt with me and possibly Jay will be back with us too talking about this. We're going to be moving into telling the story of the ten-headed demon king, Ravana. And this is the demon king that that Hanuman, the monkey deity, comes to earth in order to help Rama defeat this ten-headed demon king who is is just uh, ravaging the three worlds. He is seemingly unstoppable, but and as the story goes before that I was is, uh, giving the overview, he, he, he only is invincible against gods and demons. He left out, <laughs> he didn't even consider men and animals as a threat. So this is the, the demon king and he has a very intense origin story and so I'm looking forward to, to sharing that. Is uh, there's actually two brothers? It's Ravana and Kumbhakarna, these two e- evil demons that uh, that uh, will be uh, a, a really fascinating to explore and to extract the lessons for ourselves from. So uh, thanks again for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this first lessons of the Ramayana of the Seekers of the Eternal podcast. And I'll see you again next time. Joy to you, friends.